Welcome to the third season of Pushing Pediatrics, the ultimate podcast for pediatric physical therapists studying for the pediatric board specialty exam. We remain dedicated to providing guidance and support to pediatric physical therapists looking to excel in their field. We understand the challenges you face while studying for and passing the certification exam, but with our expert guidance and unwavering support, we are confident that you can achieve your goals. So let's dive into this journey towards becoming a board certified pediatric physical therapist together. Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put in the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content, and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we've stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram or Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics or send us an email at pushingpediatrics at gmail.com. Welcome back. This week, we are going to start off covering osteogenesis imperfecta. The book lists 21 different subtypes of OI, so make sure you know them all. Just kidding. That is going to be a lot, and we wouldn't spend our time with that level of preparation. The first five types of OI account for 85% of the affected population. These types of OI are inherited in an autosomal dominant manner. The first four types of OI are caused by a defect in the structure of type 1 collagen. OI type 1 is a mild form of the condition where individuals have fragile bones, joint hyperlaxity, and conductive hearing loss. They may have blue-colored sclerae and experience fractures during infancy and childhood. Dentinogenesis imperfecta is a condition that affects tooth development, and that can also be present. So then we have OI type 2, which is the most severe form, and it is not compatible with life. Most infants with this type of OI do not survive beyond the first week or year. They have extremely fragile bones, an underdeveloped chest, and severe skeletal deformities. The skull and facial bones show delayed ossification, and the limbs are short, curved, and deformed. OI type 3 is also severe, with progressive deformities in the long bones, skull, and spine, leading to a short stature. The bones may have a popcorn-like appearance due to abnormal growth plate lines. Like type 2, Fractures are common, but individuals with type 3 tend to survive beyond infancy. Dental problems and hearing loss are also often associated with type 3. Type 4 is a mild to moderate form characterized by mild to moderate bone fragility, postnatal short stature, and variable hearing loss. The dentinogenesis imperfecta is common, but the prognosis for ambulation in this population is usually pretty good. OI type 4 is a rare autosomal dominant form that is relatively mild. It is characterized by hypertrophic calcification of fractures and surgical procedures. There can be limitations in forearm movement due to calcification of the interosseous membrane. 
Again, there are less common types of OI, so types 5 through 21, that do not involve a defect in type 1 collagen, which is the major protein in bone, but still they present similar clinical features in bone fragility. In these cases, they may not respond predictably to bisphosphonate treatment. The book outlines that physical therapists should really consider OI in terms of mild, moderate, and severe presentation when you're developing a treatment plan. We really need to focus on needs from a functional standpoint, and the underlying genetic makeup is less relevant. Campbell discusses that a mild presentation is consistent with the ability to ambulate without an assistive device for community distances. The moderate presentation reflects an individual able to ambulate household distances, but who may also rely on alternative mobility and assistive devices for those longer distances. And then last, the severe presentation has the individual using a wheelchair for primary mobility, but at times they may be able to wait bear for transfers. Like we said before, in the first four types of OI, a defect in collagen synthesis results from an abnormality in processing pro-collagen to type 1 collagen. This defect affects the formation of both endochondral and intramembranous bone, with collagen fibers unable to mature properly. Osteoblasts, which are cells that are responsible for bone formation, may be active or even increased in activity, and they fail to produce an organized collagen. A quick review of just that normal bone formation. So we have that in the back of our mind. We have endochondral ossification, which is the process responsible for the formation of those long bones, vertebrae, and the ends of bones. It begins in the formation of a cartilage model, which later transforms into bone. The process starts with an aggregation of mesenchymal cells, which differentiate into chondroblasts and produce a cartilage matrix. The cartilage model then grows and elongates over time. At a certain stage, blood vessels invade the cartilage model, bringing osteoblasts and osteoclasts inside. The osteoblasts deposit new bone matrix over the cartilage, while osteoclasts remove old cartilage and remodel the developing bone. This process continues until the bone reaches its final shape and size. In both processes, after the bone matrix is formed, it undergoes a process called mineralization, providing strength and rigidity to the bone. The balance between osteoblast activity, which builds bones, and osteoclast activity, which breaks down the bone, is crucial for maintaining healthy bone structure throughout life. I like to remember those because blast means to build and then clast means to like break down if you're breaking down the words into like the Latin roots. So that's how I like to remember that. So OI is medically managed using bisphosphonates, which that word is one of the hardest words for me to say and pronounce. I'm not sure why. Bisphosphonates work by reducing this normal bone turnover that Sheila just described. Bisphosphonates bind to the surface of the bone and are reabsorbed by the osteoclasts, the cells that are responsible for breaking down the old bone tissue, like we said before. So remember that clast means to break down. By doing so, bisphosphonates prevents osteoclasts from functioning properly, ultimately reducing bone reabsorption. This action helps to maintain bone strength, increase bone mineral density, and decrease the risk of fractures. There is a vicious cycle that occurs following a fracture of a child with OI. 
After a fracture, the bone becomes more vulnerable to refracture. Immobilization is often necessary, of course, to align the bone, but then this leads to disuse osteoporosis, a condition characterized by weakened bones due to inactivity. So the disuse osteoporosis further increases the risk for future fractures, leading to that kind of vicious cycle. The main objective for us is to minimize immobilization of the affected limbs to prevent osteopenia and reduce the likelihood of additional fractures. In cases of long bone fractures in patients with OI, the most successful method of stabilization is through internal fixation using intramedullary rods. While the use of intramedullary rods is not complication-free, they can help prevent long bones from bowing after a fracture by providing internal support and reducing the risk of further fractures. Indications for rod stabilization include multiple recurring fractures and increased long bone deformity that impairs function. The choice of rod depends on the type and severity of the fracture. When using a solid rod, there may be bone growth beyond the ends of the rod, necessitating subsequent surgeries to replace it with a longer rod as the child grows. To minimize the number of operative procedures, special instrumentation has been developed that can grow with the child and eliminate the need for multiple surgical revisions as the bone grows. I had a kiddo with OI. I used to see him in the pool when I was working in the pool, which was an awesome place for him. But I felt like he was always going in for surgeries. He had a fairly severe type. And Basically, every summer he would have a different rod replaced. So he would have his humeral rod replaced. And then later the next summer, he would have like his left femur. And then the next summer, it would be his right femur. So I felt like we were just chasing rod replacements. And so we were always in this place where we would improve our function, then have a rod replacement and need to start back at square one and then improve function. So it's definitely a really challenging cycle to work through. He did not have the ability or the option for one that grows with you. So I think that that's still relatively new technology or it might just depend on what area of the country you're working in. Table 13.3 outlines the ICF model related to OI. We love the ICF model. Specific body function and structure issues, including diffuse osteoporosis resulting in multiple recurrent fractures, hypermobility of joints, potential cardiovascular impact, weak muscles, joint laxity, bowing of long bones, scoliosis, and kyphosis. These lead to limited functional mobility skills and higher level mobility skills and lead to limited ability to transfer and limited ambulation. Limited ability to self-propel manual, a manual wheelchair, decreased endurance, and limited independence and self-care skills, including dressing and feeding, also can be common. These activity limitations lead to participation restrictions, such as limited participation in activities caused by endurance limitations and safety concerns, limited peer play, limited access to educational and work opportunities, and limited independent living. So remember, when you're looking at the ICF model, start to kind of put some of those things into those different categories because it's just going to help you in the long run to understand the ICF model better. There are a lot of different intervention ideas, and they change a little bit throughout the lifespan of a child with OI. 
Aquatic therapy is definitely beneficial in this population, especially when working on rehabilitation from fracture or surgery. Like I kind of said with my little guy that I worked with, the pool is a great place to address strength and mobility prior to achieving those same skill sets on land. So example, we did a lot of, we had like stairs in our pool and we were able to do a lot of different sit to stand training with with my little guy. And it was kind of nice because we could increase, we basically just like went up a stair level as he would get stronger. So there was a little bit more of his body out of the water as we kind of moved up the stairs. So it was a really great place to be progressive in a place where he felt more confident, family felt more confident, and he was able to be very progressive in his ability to weight bear and do those sit to stands. In the early years, it's important to teach the family and child to avoid rotational and deforming forces across joints when learning postural transitions. It's important to position in neutral alignment of the hips when possible as well. In school-age children and older, it's important to work on trunk strength and overhead reaching to help limit the progression of scoliosis. And of course, some sort of cardiovascular exercise is absolutely vital. Going back to my little guy, I know I've talked about him a lot, but I do know one of our biggest challenges was that he was a little bit fixed in hip external rotation. So when they talk about keeping that neutral hip alignment as much as possible, part of his biggest challenge were with sit to stands is that his lower extremity resting position was so far out of neutral, it was a little bit hard to position him into that neutral position for the sit to stand. So I definitely look at that and think about how important that is. And that might be something if it's a wheelchair user thinking about that and making sure when they're in their wheelchair, that the seat cushion maybe addresses that neutral hip position as much as possible. Speaking of wheelchairs, when we are working with kids with OI, we need to think about equipment. It's super important. And we need to focus on independence and what that child needs to be as independent as possible. Within this, identifying and anticipating future needs will be important. Independent mobility, both from a wheelchair level and from a functional mobility level standpoint, is a concept that's important to know, not just with OI but other conditions that limit mobility. We need to emphasize reaching the highest level of functional mobility with independence as possible. How can that child be as independent as possible when moving their body within their environment? And of course, age-appropriate peer participation is super important as well. Absolutely. We're going to walk through a few more specifics regarding intervention to wrap up this content for you. If OI is severe, fractures could be present even at birth. These may involve the ribs or the skull or both. These fractures can have serious implications and could require a NICU stay. So physical therapists in the NICU play a role in care by providing strategies for positioning, training caregivers, and assisting the care team. Newborns with multiple fractures, including rib fractures, may require some respiratory support and pain management. We will, of course, talk more specific about PT's role in the NICU in a future episode. We also discussed this in season one and last year. We spoke with Sarah Tenenholtz about her experience being a PT in the NICU. So those are great episodes to review as well. But again, we'll have an episode covering the NICU in the coming months as well. Extended stays in the NICU are often not directly related to OI, but more often re- 
they're attributed to the company feeding and breathing difficulties that a child with multiple fractures may have. All right. So when it's time for discharge, education is extremely important. The caregivers need to be taught safe positioning, handling, and ways to naturally facilitate gross motor development. Children have special needs regarding the handling, like we just talked about, positioning, and playing. One specific concept that the book does outline and something we need to remind ourselves of is that babies identified as having OI are encouraged to remain recumbent until naturally developmentally ready to seek upright sitting on their own. This is due to the possibility of spinal microfractures, which impact the developing spine. We want the child to remain recumbent and provide interventions that naturally strengthen the neck and core muscles, giving the fragile spine more support. We don't want to encourage supportive sitting techniques too early, but instead follow the child's lead. We need to educate families to avoid seats that support the child in an upright sitting position like the bumbo or the sit-me-up or carriers that hold the child in an upright position. Hold off on these until the child is actively seeking upright alignment on their own. Timing of this is variable and very child-dependent, as most things are. Severity and motivation are both contributing factors. So when we're seeing these kids, we also want to assess how the caregiver is handling and positioning the baby during dressing, diapering, and bathing, because we can kind of help them identify and modify techniques that might put the child at a fracture risk. Some of the important handling things that we can kind of remember and educate on include not putting forces across the long bone. Uh, making sure that the head and the trunk are supported with the arms and the legs gently draped across the supporting arm or supporting the infant on a pillow when you're carrying them at home, giving the family a variety of carrying positions that are safe so the baby can develop strength by accommodating some of those postural changes and things that safely challenge their head control. And then diaper changes are a huge area for education, using a technique of rolling the infant side to side off the diaper and never lifting the child by the ankles is very important to remember. Further on in the chapter, it does discuss the developmental activities such as rolling and supported sitting should be encouraged for children with OI as tolerated, which feels a little contradictory from earlier in the chapter where we talked about following the child's lead to not stress the spine. This is obviously a bit of a gray area, and we need to use our clinical judgment here. But scooting can be a preferred form of mobility for children with OI. When treating a child with OI, be thoughtful of your handling techniques, just like we educated those parents. The pull-to-sit maneuver is a definite no-no, and we need to support more proximally around the shoulders. Similarly, with lower extremities for trunk control, more proximal hand positions near the pelvis and trunk are recommended and not at the lower extremity. Educating families on avoidance of things like baby walkers or jumping seats, those are definitely not great ideas. The book outlines the importance of active and spontaneous activity, which is encouraged in side-lying, supine positions, maybe a supported recumbent sitting position. They specify a recumbent sitting position here. So I do think that that kind of clears things up from what they were mentioning before. So if I was going to kind of give my opinion, I would say full supported upright sitting, not a good idea until the child is ready, but maybe a recumbent sitting position would be an okay position to do some activities in a little bit more of an upright place. 
And again, thinking about the pool, if it's an option for the family, this will help to promote active exercise and weight bearing in a supportive environment. The hallmarks of OI, like bone fragility, joint laxity, and reduced muscle strength, continue to be present in the preschool period, but by now, we're also usually seeing some of that sequelae of secondary impairments from the possible disuse atrophy and the osteoporosis from fracture immobilization. For the preschool child, thinking about mobility and adapted equipment is really important and needs constant updating because of the ever-changing presentation of the child. So make sure that you're consistently updating this. Starting to initiate activities appropriate for this child age range, like the scooter board and tricycles, could be a good idea to start with. Overhead reaching is a great activity for trunk extension. And again, Like we said before, aquatic exercise is excellent for OI. Aquatic therapy is a safe method of strengthening muscles through resistance and assistance of the water and the opportunity to improve cardiovascular fitness and bear weight in a protective environment. MedBridge has a lot of aquatic therapy modules uh, for you to listen to, so definitely take a look there. The pool is a place where you can use buoyancy to assist weak movements, then support the movements, and finally use water to resist active movements. Campbell reminds us that precautions should be taken when the pool therapy is considered for the child with OI, specifically with the heat of the water, which creates a rise in body temperature and increases metabolism. Due to this, pool sessions are generally limited to 20 to 30 minutes. Ambulation can also be introduced in the pool. Again, using that buoyancy to help you here and support the body as needed. The main focus of preschool treatment is safe, independent mobility. Something like a scooter for sitting and propelling with the legs or the hands may be useful, or some of those ride-on toys like the Go Baby Go programs provide. Ambulation can also be protected outside of the pool as well. Parallel bars or a walker can be early forms of assistance. Sometimes a lightweight wheelchair is used during times of fracture recovery. For more severe forms, a a motorized wheelchair may be a consideration at this age. Remember, this doesn't mean ambulation isn't a focus or isn't worked on, but instead, you're adding different mobility options. It's imperative to provide the child with a degree of functional independence, so giving those additional mobility options is a way to do this. We're going to kind of see this come up as we discuss cerebral palsy as well. Independent mobility is super important. By adolescence, we may begin to see spine deformity in the form of scoliosis, kyphosis, or both, resulting from compression fractures of the vertebrae, osteoporosis, and ligamentous laxity. You may also see marked bowing of the long bones from multiple, from multiple fractures and growth arrests at the epiphyseal plates in more severe cases. Thankfully, the frequency of fracture tends to decrease markedly after puberty. Weight management and physical activity are important at this age. Management of scoliosis and kyphosis and adaptive equipment are all important things to focus on in the adolescent period, along with typical therapeutic things like ambulation, endurance, and strength. During this stage, household ambulation is something that can be accomplished, but most school-age and older children with OI use wheelchairs for community ambulation. According to Campbell, the type of OI correlates to the strategy for mobility, as type 3 are wheelchair users, while type 1 and 5 tend to be ambulatory. Type 4 uses a combination of walking and wheelchair use. 
All right. So we're going to shift gears a little bit onto neuromuscular diseases. So shifting away from OI, and now we're going on to muscular dystrophies and spinal muscular atrophies. We're going to go over each of these diagnoses and specific clinical pearls about them. Campbell's chapter is super detailed, so we recommend going through and reading the chapter in full. If you have access to the online content, they also have case studies associated with that ebook. We love the ebook, so definitely take advantage if you are able to. As with all diagnoses, a team approach to care is recommended with family being the center of it all. You really want to focus on collaborative goal setting with these patients with neuromuscular diseases. For physical therapists, we want to have a full understanding of the clinical progression of the disease as this is critical, but we have to know that this is not the case for all diagnoses. Most diseases of muscles are the result of a single gene defect. The primary impairment in muscular dystrophies is weakness, congenital forms being at birth, and Duchenne muscular dystrophy around three to five years old. Secondary impairments include development of contractures and postural alignment. In Duchenne muscular dystrophy, which from here on out, we're going to refer to as DMD, progressive disability is a hallmark of the disease, and physical management remains a key intervention in both DMD and all forms of MD. We are going to start off this chapter with talking specifically about Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So again, DMD. DMD is caused by abnormal or missing dystrophin on the cell membrane and associated proteins. So this missing dystrophin causes weakness and decreased muscle firing. The book starts by going over treatments. So we're going to start here too. Genetic therapies include a variety of approaches that we won't go over in too much detail because there are many still being developed and researched. Just know that genetic therapies may be something to consider with DMD when available in the future. So the use of creatine has shown positive improvements in muscle strength and endurance and a reduction in joint stiffness. Long-term steroid use, so things like prednisone and deflazacort have shown improvements in being able to increase prolonged walking by three years, improved muscle strength, and improved pulmonary function. So that is great. Deflazacort is the first glucocorticoid specifically designed for DMD with full approval. So definitely make sure that you know about prednisone and deflazacort. Prolonging ambulation continues to kind of be a goal, but I think we need to look at what cost. So KAFOs have been recommended to prolong ambulation in conjunction with surgery, but they should be considered more exercise and not really functional. Surgical management that we might see includes lower extremity contracture management, the use of orthosis in conjunction with surgery to prolong ambulation, fracture care, spinal stabilization, And then also recommend to make sure that we have early assessments for osteoporosis so that way we know what's going on and if that is an issue and what precautions we need to take. Box 14.1 and 14.2 have great comprehensive lists of evidence-based examinations and evidence-based interventions for DMD. Definitely check these out. We're going to highlight some of the major pieces for you. So activity outcome measures include the six-minute walk test, timed up and down four steps, the timed gowers, timed 10-meter walk or run, the North Star Ambulatory Assessment, performance upper limb module for DMD, the motor function measure, 
the PD, the PEDS QL, the EGAN classification scale, and the Health Utilities Index Questionnaire. Some evidence-based intervention recommendations include night splinting at end range, submaximal concentric endurance exercises, no eccentric, just make sure you remember that, no eccentric exercises, stretching, percussion, and cough assist. Always assess the child's functional abilities and their ambulation abilities. So you kind of want to ask yourself questions like, is the ambulation functional? Should you consider moving in a different direction? Should power mobility be considered and kind of have those in the back of your mind? And here, remember too, that you don't want to get to a point where you need a power mobility tomorrow. That isn't going to be helpful for the child. So we really need to be thinking long-term and what they're going to need because we just know it takes a long time to get equipment. So as a physical therapist working with this population, you really need to have a constant thought of what types of things do they need now? And then what are they going to need six and 12 months from now? So that way we're putting those things in place. And this is where you have to kind of slowly have these conversations with families. These are hard conversations to have, but if you're constantly kind of thinking of that and helping guide them towards what you need to do to keep the family safe, to keep the child safe when it comes to transfers and mobility, then I think you'll have a good relationship with the family. Yeah. And we're going to touch on this a little bit later because there are some uh, things to remember, especially when it comes to the outcome measures that will help you to predict the loss of ambulation. So that'll kind of give you an idea of, all right, so, you know, we're at a certain point now where the outcome measure has come out to a certain time or whatever it may be that maybe we need to start looking at that the next form of mobility, whether it be a scooter, whether it be a power wheelchair and so on and so on. So initial presentation for DMD includes weakness of the neck flexors and the proximal musculature, as well as that pseudo hypertrophy of the calf. No range of motion limitations are typically noted prior to five years old, and the normal lordotic posture is increased and mild winging of the scapula may be present. There are some really good pictures in the book as well. Some key things to remember for DMD, timed functional tests are correlated to muscle strength and predict the loss of ambulation, like we talked about a little bit earlier. If the 10 meter walk or run time is more than nine seconds and they have an inability to rise up from the floor, this predicts loss of ambulation within two years. If the 10 meter walk run time is greater than 12 seconds, this predicts loss of ambulation within one year. So make sure that you remember those things. Uh, they talk about this in the book. There's also, I can't remember, and Sheila, maybe you remember where it is. There was a really good, I think it was actually on MedBridge. Yeah, it was but, definitely MedBridge. But there's a really nice um, schematic or figure that kind of shows the progression of loss of skills with DMD. We will post an Instagram post about it. Um, I the think week we have a episode. post from a couple of years or from last year, maybe. So yep, there's we definitely, definitely something do. there. Yeah, we definitely have one from last year. So if you want to pop onto our Instagram, you can. We'll repost it for you guys, though, too. During the infancy to preschool period, not much is typically done due to the fact that impairments are not typically seen until the age of three to five. However, it's important that upon the initial diagnosis that disability-related issues are addressed, such as peer interaction, prognosis, and routine activity level of a child. 
education is crucial during this period. I actually had a patient many years ago. I was actually still a fairly new physical therapist that was a three-year-old presented. He was a little bit of a toe walker, had a little bit of that increased lumbar lordosis. Family was concerned that he was tripping and falling and seemed like he had a little bit of difficulty going upstairs. We saw him, didn't have any huge concerns initially, worked on things, were doing things like stairs, practicing getting stronger, and it just didn't seem like he was getting any stronger after six months. And right after we kind of did a little reassessment at the six months, we started to pick up on the Gower sign. So he was probably about three and a half at the time. And it was a pretty classic Gower. And he did go on to get a diagnosis of Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So I think that's something to remember when we're thinking about these kids is that sometimes you don't necessarily see them at the initial evaluation and you jump right to that because at three, the deficits are probably going to be fairly mild. But when you look at a six-month snapshot of a child and you don't see the progress that you would maybe expect to see in a child or if there is a few skills that they never get or that they lose, that's when I think the red flags go up and then you need to figure out what you're going to do next. So the early school age period tends to be when we see impairments and initial limitations. Initial signs include clumsiness, falling, inability to keep up with peers when playing, and so on. You may see a compensated Trendelenburg pattern and a waddling gait that is more pronounced when attempting to run. Running is also characterized by a high step pattern with limited push-off. And just like Sheila was talking about, Gower's sign is also present at this time. Steer climbing and a rising to standing becomes progressively more difficult. You'll start to see progressive changes in gait patterns, such as increased base of support, pronounced lateral trunk sway, toe walking, lordosis, and a lack of reciprocal arm swing. Interventions in this period include submaximal exercise program. So again, submaximal is the key word here, and we're not doing eccentric exercises. Key muscle groups that should be strengthened include the abdominals, hip extensors, abductors, and knee extensors. Cycling and swimming are also good interventions that are recommended. Standing and walking for two to three hours a day. And then again, high resistance and eccentric exercises should be avoided. Circle that, put a star around it, just remember that for DMD. Stretching five times a day, 30 to 60 seconds for each exercise or each muscle group. So such as the gastrocs, the hamstrings, and the TFL are important. Night splints for slowing ankle, ankle contractions. Prone positioning at night if they tolerate it for stretching the hip flexors. Breathing exercises should definitely be incorporated early on to slow the loss of vital capacity and forced expiratory flow rate. You also want to make sure that you're getting a baseline measurement of, you know, the child's respiratory rate, chest wall excursion, the child's ability to cough, and using a portable spirometer. You want to make sure that you're looking at these before pulmonary testing is needed. So kind of take all of those measurements early on. Falls and complaints of fatigue tend to increase around 8 to 10 years old. So you want to assess the need for community mobility like we were talking about. And again, as Sheila said, we or the book recommends to not wait until walking ceases completely to obtain this equipment. So you really want to make sure that you are 
thinking about this, you're seeing the signs, you're looking at those outcome measures to make sure you kind of have an idea of when walking is going to potentially cease. And you really want to make sure you're getting this equipment early, early on. And there's so much to think about with equipment because it's not just getting a power chair, right? You also have to make sure that the family has a way to transport a power chair. I think that that sometimes can be the biggest barrier to being able to get a power chair for a child is knowing that they're going to be able to use that power chair in the community where they need it. So lots of moving pieces. The adolescent period is where we begin to see significant progression of the disease. So walking typically is lost as a means of mobility. We also may see increased difficulty with transfers. When we're looking at exercise in the adolescence period, we're probably going to shift our emphasis on the lower extremities to the upper extremities. So key muscle groups for strengthening now include shoulder depressors and triceps, so that way we can maintain that transferability. Contractures are still something that we need to monitor, and we want to make sure that those don't become obstacles for some of our routine ADLs. The use of corticosteroids may reduce the risk of developing scoliosis that requires intervention from 90% to 15 to 20%. So that's a pretty big reduction by using corticosteroids. The cessation of independent walking usually occurs between 10 to 12 years old. Standing or walking programs using equipment, so things like orthotics or standing frames, should be initiated prior to the child becoming non-ambulatory. So again, that same concept that we've been talking about. So the book gives an example. If a stander becomes the choice of equipment, order the stander when the 10-meter walk time is above 9 seconds so that the child can begin a standing program prior to the loss of ambulation. Prognostic factors for success using orthotics to prolong walking include how much residual muscle strength does the child have? Is there an absence of severe contractures? Do we have timely application of braces? What is their residual walking ability? And what is the motivation of the child and the family? If the decision is to prolong ambulation using orthotics, we can use KAFOs to do this. Some may prefer surgery rather than braced ambulation, so indications include ankle plantar flexion contractures more than 10 degrees, IT band contractures greater than 20 degrees, knee hip flexion contractures greater than 20 but less than 45 degrees. There's various methods to predict the cessation of walking. We talked about this earlier. Some other ways that we can kind of predict are a 50% reduction in leg strength, a manual muscle grade below three for the hip extensors or below a grade four for ankle dorsiflexors, the inability to climb stairs. Five to 12 seconds to climb four stairs usually predicts the cessation of walking in an average of two to four years. And then if it takes longer than 12 seconds to climb four stairs, the cessation of walking on average is about 1.5 years. Other things to consider, we need to look at things like hydraulic lifts for transfers, motorized scooters or powered mobility, and then a manual wheelchair or a stroller as a manual backup for if anything were to happen with the power chair, you'd still want a way to transport the child. As the child transitions into adulthood, mobility using a power wheelchair becomes necessary. A power wheelchair with tilt and recline may be desirable. Life expectancy ranges from late teens into the third or fourth decade. 
With the early use of steroids and tracheostomy or non-invasive ventilator assistance, longevity has increased to that third or fourth decade. Progressive muscular weakness tends to result in decreased ventilatory volumes caused by a restriction of chest wall excursion. So this is why we were saying before that you want to get those baseline measurements when the child is younger. So in that way, you can compare them as the child transitions into that adolescent and adulthood. After 18 years of age, the FVC and the PEF typically show a decline over time. Decreased FVC is also correlated with the loss of ambulation. The chapter is heavily focused on Duchenne muscular dystrophy, so this is where we kept our focus, but we're going to continue on with some different types of muscular dystrophies and just keep them a little more brief for you. So another type of muscular dystrophy is Becker muscular dystrophy, and this is a milder version of Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So it's a slowly progressive variant, meaning that the onset of symptoms is usually closer to 11 years and the loss of ability to walk happens closer to like 27 years. Death is usually around 42 years, of course, like this is from the book. So there's probably a large range, but that's kind of according to Campbell. Impairments are very similar to muscular or to Duchenne, though they're just less severe. Initial clinical signs include things like maybe a gastroc contracture and that proximal weakness that might be seen in the mid to late teens. There is an increased presence of cardiac involvement, so things like dilated cardiac myopathy, so that's definitely something to be considered. For exercise, there is still those precautions around eccentric exercise. We don't want to create excessive fatigue, and we don't want to do things that create that delayed onset muscle soreness. However, endurance training is definitely beneficial for people with Becker muscular dystrophy. The longevity reported, like we said before, into the mid-40s and beyond, and usually death is due to complications from that dilated cardiac myopathy. When we're thinking about adults with Becker, we want to think about their vocational choices, and they should be made with the disease progression and disability level in mind. Congenital muscular dystrophy is a heterogeneous group of muscle disorders with onset in utero or during the first year of life. They're characterized by delayed motor development and early onset muscle weakness. There are many different categories that congenital muscular dystrophy can fit into, and all of them have varying functional levels. According to Campbell, children with congenital muscular dystrophy typically have decreased respiratory function, which is observed by the end of the first decade and often will require overnight ventilator support. Attention should definitely be made to positioning, airway clearance techniques, and maximizing functional skills in sitting as many children with congenital muscular dystrophy and associated nervous system diseases do not attain walking. Careful consideration is also provided when talking about prognosis as there are so many different varying functional levels with congenital muscular dystrophy. Next, we will talk about child onset fascioscapulohumeral muscular dystrophy, Phew, that is a word. It may result in the onset of clinical signs within the first two years, but without significant impairment or disability until later in the first decade, where there's a continuous spectrum of severity with later disease onset. So usually we see weakness and fatigue that is progressive, and the weakness is usually in the trunk muscles, the plantar flexors, the quads. We usually see the most impaired weakness in the trunk muscles, plantar flexors, and quads. 
Initially, they do develop walking without really any significant or notable delay, but then we might start to see excessive lordosis and kyphosis later on as a clinical feature. The scapula are widely abducted and outwardly rotated in the preschool age while developing into a much more severe winging in the school age period. Power wheelchair or mobility should be considered when walking becomes increasingly difficult. Myotonic dystrophy is the most common adult onset neuromuscular disease. Congenital myotonic dystrophy is pretty rare. Children with a diagnosis are born exclusively to mothers with myotonic dystrophy who have the chromosome 19 defect. These children experience cardiopulmonary impairment along with motor impairment and intellectual disability is common. Um, survival beyond the first few years of life indicates a prognosis of steadily improving motor function within the first decade, and most will walk by age two, according to Campbell. Severe weakness and paralysis of the diaphragm are clinical features at birth, and a hallmark feature of the disease is myotonia. Cardiac involvement is common, and progressive improvement in motor skills can be expected in infancy and preschool. As the child transitions into adulthood, cognitive impairments seem to be the most limiting factor. Emory Dreyfus MD is an inherited and X-linked recessive disorder. Clinical features can vary widely, but hallmark features include posterior neck weakness, eventual trunk extensor contractures, slowly progressing muscle weakness, and cardiac disease. There is a very characteristic pattern of prominent contractures, so the posterior neck and spinal extensors, elbow flexors, pectoral muscles, and angle plantar flexors. Physical therapy usually focuses on maintaining flexibility throughout the childhood years as it seems to be that contractures are kind of our biggest concern here. Independent walking is typically maintained into adulthood, though it can be widely variable and probably really depends on and probably really depends on how effective we were at contracture management. So lastly, we're going to chat with you about spinal muscular atrophy or SMA. This diagnosis is pretty loaded. Um, we're going to just go through things kind of like the bare bones with you, but there's more information in the book as well. So the primary pathological feature of SMA is the loss of anterior horn cells in the spinal cord. It's usually identified through newborn screening programs. SMA is inherited in an autosomal recessive pattern. No cure is currently available. Disease-modifying medical treatments and physical therapy really is the standard of care. These include Spinraza, which I know we've all heard of. There are three types of SMA. SMA type 1, the onset is between 0 to 4 months. The primary impairment is usually primary muscle weakness secondary to the loss of the anterior horn cells in the spinal cord. Secondary impairments include scoliosis and contractures. Other impairments include decreased respiratory capacity, muscle weakness, and fatigability. Respiratory care is very pertinent with the type 1 patients. Range of motion is, and positioning is crucial to limit the development of contractures. And development, a developmental position should be utilized, such as sideline and supine when propped on a wedge. Prone should be avoided or closely monitored with these patients. Death secondary to pneumonia or other respiratory complications is common in the absence of medical supportive care within a few months to a few years. SMA type 2 onset is between 6 to 12 months after attainment of independent sitting usually. 
Some children may develop the ability to stand. Some may ambulate with the use of KAFOs. Um, contractures and weaknesses are usually the most noticeable impairments. TLSOs are, can be considered to improve posture while in sitting, but careful consideration needs to occur due to the respiratory concerns in this population. Independent mobility is encouraged, and if the child is able to walk, this should be continued to work on, but other cons considerations such as power mobility should be explored. Remember, a child as young as 18 to 24 months can propel a power wheelchair. In adulthood, vocational options need to be considered at the level of disability, but cognition does not tend to be affected and is not necessarily a factor. And then finally, SMA type 3 onset is between 1 and 10 years. The initial disability becomes apparent in the first decade and usually includes difficulty arising from the floor, climbing stairs, and keeping up with peers during play. A compensated Trendelenburg pattern or a waddling gait may be present. Walking in some cases with SMA type 3 can be maintained long, lifelong as a means of independent mobility, and improvements in ambulation have been seen with disease-modifying therapies and will also assist this goal. All right. That was a lot of information. I definitely think there's probably a little bit more about SMA. I think the hard thing is, is I really feel like Spinraza has changed a lot of, and the other therapies as well, have changed a little bit of SMA. And I think some of those, it seems like from the anecdotal stuff I've heard from therapists that some of our typical discussions of type one, type two, and type three are different now that we have those types of treatments, but we're going from Campbell right now. And I think it's important that we maybe look up some of the research, maybe some stuff from like the late teens research to just see if some of that stuff is changing. But this is all directly from Campbell. So make sure you're reading it and knowing it, but also knowing that I think that that's a really dynamic part of pediatric PT right now because the the medications seem to be so effective in kind of changing the trajectory of the diseases. So that's all we have for you today. We will be back on Friday for another episode and we will see you then. Thank you for tuning in to Pushing Pediatrics today. We hope you found the information shared valuable and applicable to your test preparation and daily practice. Remember, success is a journey and we're committed to supporting you every step of the way. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and share it with your colleagues. Until next time, you've got this.